Like most trends on social media, they have their moment in the spotlight before the next one comes along. But some trends catch on and stick around, and one of those is girl dinner. First launched in May by LA TikTok user Olivia Ma, she posted a video of her dinner, which comprised of several types of cheeses, a couple of slices of bread, cornichons, and grapes haphazardly arranged on a plastic chopping board, likening it to what medieval peasants would have eaten. Since then, girl dinner has taken a life of its taken on a life of its own with hundreds of thousands of people showing off their dinners alongside this jingle. This is my meal. I call this girl dinner. Girl, girl dinner. Girl dinner. Girl dinner. Girl There have been plates of just hash browns with tomato sauce and a cookie, a can of Coke with nachos and cheese, kumara fries with mayonnaise, boiled eggs with a couple of strawberries and a cheese stick. It looks disorganised, effortless, random, it looks insubstantial, and that's exactly what it's supposed to be. Founder and CEO of She's a Crowd, Dr Zoe Condliffe, has a PhD in digital feminism, and I spoke to her earlier about why Girl Dinner has taken off. Yeah, so I think that Girl Dinner is really interesting. I would call it a meme and the memification of the word kind of girl. Um, And I think that with kind of any meme uh, and with any kind of form of hashtag activism or um, feminist activism that we see on social media, often the reason it catches on is because it is so relatable and so many people realise that they've all had this one specific common experience that they hadn't previously spoken about openly. So they see other people, for example, post these these kind of meals and call it girl dinner and they go, oh, my God, that was my secret single behaviour. Like if you've seen Sex and the City, <laughs> you'll know that episode. Um, the SSB. Carrie, <laughs> the SSB and she even says, you know, I I use my oven for storage. <laughs> um, and so I think it's that type of thing where it's like, oh, it's been this secret single behaviour of the single woman or it's been this thing that, you know, I haven't really made a big deal of. I just do it. I don't post about it. I don't share it. It's kind of embarrassing because I'm just, you know, eating these little these little random kind of meals and putting a piece of cheese on a plate and some grapes or whatever and that's my dinner. Um, and it's it seems really insignificant, I guess, on face value because it's like, well, you know, it's just it's just cheese on a plate, right? Yeah. But I actually think it's so much more than that because it is about recognising the commonalities between our experiences and social media allowing for this proliferation of previously invisible or unseen narratives that we then all can kind of cling on to and relate to and it kind of creates this snowballing or what I like to call the Me Too effect. For listeners, just to give them an idea, some of the images that these women are posting are things like just a plate of hash browns with tomato sauce, you know, a can of Coke, nachos and cheese, boiled eggs with a couple of strawberries and a cheese stick, you know, very basic, random bits of food. And I think even Nigella Lawson calls it picky bits. That's her term. What about the use of the word girl? Because there's, there's a sense of reclaiming that word, isn't there? Yeah, that's right. And I like to speak a lot about that. But just on your description there, Perlina, I think what is of note is that 
it is not aesthetic, okay? So it's almost a rebellion from what we've seen maybe over the last 10 years of these very aestheticized meals that you see on Instagram. People post these perfect mm. pictures that where there's been a lot of effort put in um, to make your life look perfect, your meal look perfect. And that, that I think, speaks to that what we saw was like the girl boss era and the lean in era, which was almost like a post-feminist <laughs> kind of thing where I think it actually didn't really help the cause because it made women feel pressure to all be perfect and have it all all at once. And I think that this kind of really sketchy, not very attractive, not necessarily nutritious meal and showing, you know, sometimes I don't have time. Sometimes that's just the reality of it is actually kind of, a much more honest and relatable, I guess, experience to share and experience to see. And when we tell the truth of our lives and see how other women live, we often feel very like, I guess, empowered by that. And I think in terms of the word girl, I know that, you know, it is a, it's a term that has a lot, carries a lot of baggage, I guess, because we know that living, you know, in a patriarchal society as we do, we we see a lot of language that is, yeah, I guess we can tell a lot um, about our society from the language we use. Mm. And so something like the word girl, we notice that, for example, there's a lot of people out there who would call men men and then call women girls still. And I think that the use of the word girls for women um is often a way of kind of diminishing us and keeping us in our place and can be used um, in that way to speak up, I guess, to speak about us in this way that infantilizes us. Mm. So I think the reclaiming of the word girl is actually what's happening here and is actually very necessary just because when we reclaim a term that's been used previously against us to diminish us, and I'm sure you can think of other terms that have also been used in that way, then we actually remove the power that it has over us. We take that power away. So we've seen this kind of girlification over social, on social media over the last few years where we've had like the hot girl walks or... <laughs> The girlies, um, you we had the girls, the gals, um, all these, the gals. We had the gals, and I think it's, yeah, it's it's almost like a, it's 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 been iterated upon, and I think that the term girl it doesn't actually have that much to do with womanhood or being female. It's actually kind of a term unto itself, and I know you know it's. It's used in the queer community a lot, for example, and it signifies, it's it's actually, I would call it a code, like I would say it's a kind of a code um, that we can use amongst ourselves um, to kind of reclaim the way that it has previously been used against us. Mm. There's also been spin-offs from this girl dinner. There's also girl math. So is it the same concept? Yeah, it's a very similar concept and girl math is... Um, another one where it's kind of like an inside joke as well. Um, it's about how we how we've learnt to justify our spending, <laughs> and I think you know with girl dinner, it's particularly interesting because it speaks to gendered labour, and 
the way that women are often socialized to be very proud of the food that we make Mm. for our families. And that takes time. It takes effort. It takes a lot of mental labor to think about what you're going to make, then go out and buy the groceries and then cook it and present it to the family. And I think that if we look at it from this kind of gendered labor perspective, um, I think girl dinner actually holds a lot of power in saying, actually, no, you know, I don't have to spend all of this labor and energy. I'm a single woman and I can reclaim my time um, by... (laughs) I can eat what I want when I want. (laughs) Yeah, by just eating what I actually feel like eating in the way that I want to. (laughs) And I think girl maths is an interesting one too, because again, you know, maths is something that we're told we're not good at. Um, you know, we know the numbers and we know women are not, well, it's changing now, but, you know, women haven't always been encouraged to go into STEM mm-hmm. fields. And mm. yeah, and I guess that's been seen as like quite a gendered, like maths is seen as quite a masculine field. And I think that the other thing is like women are taught that what we want to spend money on and what we like is frivolous and superfluous and not really of value. And so if we want to buy something like makeup or skincare, which I would call like a tool that you need mm-hmm. to use to get through your day, in, you know, get, get through your day, get through your job, get through life in the patriarchy, then, you know, it's like seen as something that's not really that, yeah, that you have to really defend why you're choosing to spend your money in that way. And I think that girl math may be a way of kind of, it, it's something we all do like, oh, well, I really want these linen sheets and if I had them for two years, then that would actually only cost me $1 per night, you know, to the water. Or you did you know, that was on sale. So actually I saved $100. Absolutely. I say I actually made $100. (laughs) I'm getting paid to wear this at this point. (laughs) Yeah. And I think it's, I mean, I think it's just basic like uh, cost-benefit analysis. And I think, yeah, it's. I think it's a smart way to think of think of things, but I think it's, yeah, again, with the word girl, it's kind of like a, it's funny and it's fun and it's, it's, it's a, it's kind of an in joke, mm. you know. It feels like girls. a bit of a nod and a wink to each other. Yeah, it does. Mm. How has the digital world changed or enhanced the way in which women can relate to each other? You know, is there something about being able to reach people around the world and not just in your immediate community? Yeah, it's huge. So I speak a lot about this. This is really what my PhD has focused on is the way that social media has created a new form of public space and it has allowed for the proliferation of real stories grouped by hashtags and by moments to be shared and kind of built upon in that Me Too snowballing effect on a scale that is unprecedented. And I look at it through the lens of feminist consciousness raising, which was a very specific process designed in the 1970s and in the second wave feminist movement where small groups of women would meet in these cell groups. And the purpose of those was for them to have an opportunity to share the truth of their lives, their experiences of sexism and of violence um and then hear the stories of others and they start to realize that I'm not alone this wasn't an isolated experience and when they start to realize they're not alone they realize 
oh my gosh, there's a whole trend here. There's a whole theme. So then therefore maybe, you know, this isn't about me and something unfortunate that happened to me. This is about a system and there's mm. a structure here. Mm. And then when they start to realize that the shame that they had felt internally, the isolation and shame that they had turned inward on themselves, they, they turn outward at the system and they begin to get angry and they begin to see the system. And then they actually, it's a transformative process from victim into survival, from woman into feminist. And that is the backbone. That was the backbone. Those mm. groups um, in a lot of ways were the backbone of the movement and allowed women to sustain a form of feminist rage that was very productive. And I argue that social media has created a new space and opportunity for feminist consciousness to be raised on a scale that has not really been seen previously. And we saw, you know, in 2017, what happened with the Me Too movement mm -hmm. and the ripple effects continue today. Mm -hmm. And then I argue that these smaller memes that seem very silly and funny actually also are a form of raising feminist consciousness because when we are able to see the truth of how other women really live. We feel a sense of solidarity with each other, even if it's something as simple as a girl dinner. Well, all your work is, is surrounding this. You founded She's a Crowd, which is the biggest geospatial database of gender-based violence in the world. So people are coming to you with their stories and this gives insights and mapping tools on the survivors' experiences. And, and all the stories are anonymous. And then you share this information with governments, universities and transportation companies. But you also have a master's in arts and you've turned some of your work in this area into exhibits as well. Yeah, that's right. So I run She's a Crowd. We're the largest geospatial database for survivor stories in the world. And obviously, you know, I am a little bit obsessed with this, this storytelling process. And that's why I did my PhD in it as well. And people, I guess, often ask, you know, how did you get into running a tech startup? Mm you know, did you, are you, are you a developer? Do you do, did you do data? And I actually went to art school. Um, and I guess, yeah, when I was studying my master's at the VCA, that's when it really started because I, I did a lot of kind of art installations that focused on the private public divide when it comes to gender-based violence. And so I worked really closely with survivors um to support them to share their story in a format that worked for them and their stories were all to do with their interactions with um institutions so mm -hmm. whether it be um the court system and reporting sexual assault or the family court system and uh custody or with the hospital system and actually being kind of detained or <laughs> called crazy by an abuser and put in hospital, or whether it be um, the stolen generation, which um, some of the women I worked with had experience with having their children taken away and also being taken away from their parents and all of these different forms of violence. And so uh, really like exploring how kind of victim survivors made sense of those experiences mm. um, and reclaimed those experiences 
um, through the mode of storytelling. And then I also did a piece where survivors of domestic violence actually wrote letters to their abusers and I blew those letters up um, and did uh, paste-ups all the all the way along the the route that Jill Ma walked um, in Brunswick mm. when she was um, when she was murdered. Yeah, very tragically, and, and just kind of commenting on the the monster myth and the way that we kind of understand violence to play out, and you know, a lot of the a lot of the misconceptions around how it actually often happens in the reality of life, um, the lives of people who experience it. So it's been something that I've been exploring for a while, but I guess, yeah, it did very much start with kind of creating art through storytelling. 